Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. This month on Partisan Gardens, we're sharing a presentation by Kristen Ross, author of the landmark book Communal Luxury, The Political Imaginary of the Paris Commune. She delivered the lecture to the 2019 Antipode American Association of Geographers in Washington, D.C., and gave another version of the talk here in Bloomington that same year. Titled The Seventh Wonder of the Zod, Ross goes beyond an account of this successful anti-airport struggle to offer a powerful framework for understanding contemporary movements. She argues that anti-development struggles are not merely environmentalist or NIMBY, but rather an opportunity to defend the conditions for life on the planet while also building new relations amongst people and other organisms. The process of defending land calls into being new forms of sharing and coordination and has, in the Americas, propelled indigenous movements for cultural resurgence. In 2002, while fighting I-69, an interstate destroying farmland here in Indiana, farmers shared food that they grew within the proposed route at huge community harvest meals. In order to defend the river from a gas pipeline in so-called Canada, indigenous people from the Wet'suwet'en Nation recently built both blockades and a cabin to live in through the winter, directly above a ceremonial pit house. We'll include links with information on the grassroots Wet'suwet'en struggle on our website. Contrary to any NIMBY framing, these defensive struggles often create surprising spaces and far-flung connections, and not just as in the Zod, which Ross first visited in order to discuss the 1871 Paris Commune. In Atlanta, Georgia, the movement to defend an urban forest has become an anti-racist abolitionist struggle in the wake of the George Floyd uprising last year, since the forest is slated to be destroyed to build a vast police training center. Before Ross's lecture, we'd like to share a brief introduction to that movement from a participant on the ground in Atlanta. Here they are. It was definitely one of the more active sites of the Black Lives Matter rebellion that followed the death of George Floyd. And there are other local police murders that fed into the outrage at over-policing. But as for the history of the forest specifically, the government took control of the land following the Civil War, and at that point it was city land. The federal government got it after the Civil War from the city and had plans to build a POW camp there during World War I. 
those plans were scrapped uh, the next year because World War I had ended, and it was transferred to the Georgia State Bureau of Prisons, who went on to build it into a prison farm, and it was called the Honor Farm. And it hit peak production in 1959. It was producing farm produce for other prisons in the area. The prison closed in 1995, and there was a series of fires and floods. It became an illegal dumping ground. So the Defend the Forest Coalition was assembled in an attempt to get popular control of the land and to retain it as a public park. So half of the land has already been officially leased to the Atlanta Police Foundation, which is a private institution that represents the police. They're leasing the land for $10 a year from the city. The way that I see it is that Cop City is sort of like a microcosm of what is happening all across the country, which is that big decisions in the community are being made without the consent of the communities affected. Cop City stands to cause lead pollution in the area. It stands to cause increased watershed pollution as well due to the increase in paved surfaces, an increase in local warming because the global climate change can be observed to vary throughout the city and places with less green space are actually hotter. So the point is that these public parks, these public lands, belong rightfully to the community. This is a struggle for popular control of the future of our land. It may just be one small piece of it, but it's an example of how communities are deprived of a say in what happens in their community. And that's what we're trying to fight. Defend the Forest has been using strategies of going and just inhabiting the space to assert our right to be there and our right to use the space as it was intended originally as a public park. Check out our website for links to defend the Atlanta Forest. And now, Kristen Ross's Seventh Wonder of the Zod. In 2016, I was invited to the site of the longest lasting political struggle in post-war French history. This was the occupation of a small stretch of farmland and wetlands outside of Nantes, whose aim, which was ultimately successful, was to block the construction of an international airport on that site. The inhabitants of the Zad, as the occupation came to be known, asked me to discuss with them the continuities and discontinuities between the 1871 insurrection in the heart of the capital, known as the Paris Commune, and what was occurring there at Notre-Dame-des-Landes. They were interested, as I am, in the form and practices of free communes, in questions of decentralization and ways of creating a regional self-sufficiency that is not a closing in on itself. Their interest in the 19th century event and the time I subsequently spent at the Zod was remarkable to me in a number of ways. 
For one thing, it reconfirmed something that I had argued in my book, Communal Luxury, that the return after 2011 throughout the world to a political strategy based on seizing space or rendering space public had caused the commune to enter forcefully into the figuration of the present as a laboratory of political invention, a kind of usable archive of legacy ideas and practices. And it had another effect of a historical nature as well. For me, it changed profoundly how I thought about the history of the recent past. The Zad made visible a whole alternative world history of the last half of the last century, a history in which place-based battles against government seizure or management of land emerge as the definitive battles of our age. Recent occupational movements firmly anchored in a particular region or territory like the Zad or like pipeline struggles in the Americas, such as Standing Rock, make it possible to see a distinctly new political sensibility emerging sometime toward the end of the last century. It is as if throughout the world people began to realize that the tension between the logic of development and that of the ecological basis of life had become the primary contradiction ruling their lives. The 10-year struggles in the 1970s of farmers in the Larzac region of France and their supporters fighting the government appropriation of their land to be used as an army training ground, or the equally lengthy and much more bloody battle of farmers on the outskirts of Tokyo trying with the help of radical students to prevent their land from becoming the site of the Narita airport can now be seen as among the most emblematic struggles of the second half of the 20th century in the following sense. The two movements mark the beginning of a political sensibility that brings together the will to change the social rules of an unequal world with that of preserving or conserving or caring for or defending the living, the ecological basis of society. Like the indigenously-led land-based struggles occurring in the Americas and in Australia, these were movements that drew on political ecology not in a particular environmentalist sense, but as a rethinking of and a challenge to the existing order of relations of humans among themselves and to other organisms. They could not, as such, be dismissed as nimbyism. They were the sign instead that the relations we maintain with the living would now be at the heart of any political movement of significance. In this sense, we could say that defending the conditions for life on the planet became sometime around the middle of the last century the new and incontrovertible horizon of meaning of all political struggle. Now, the Zad's existence, Oops, these are maps of the Zad. I, I thought I better have some maps given who I was speaking to. They're, they're pretty fanciful. They're kind of hard to see, but um, the Zad's ex existence, as much as a shared territory as a movement, with both aspects held equally dear, was thus for me a forceful reminder that to gain 
ground in the fight against enclosure, for this is what the fight is all about, we actually need to gain ground. That is, we need to put our feet someplace, to remain someplace, to retreat into and defend someplace, even if it is only a semi-arable stretch of land, which the French government, when it designated it as the site of a future airport, consistently described, much to the surprise of the farmers living and cultivating there, as a desert. Space-specific, geographically defined struggles have a kind of refreshing flat-footedness about them. David Harvey has suggested that this is because the fact of being bound to a particular space creates an either-or dialectic, something quite distinct from a transcendental or Hegelian one. Demands, concerns, and aspirations that are place-specific in nature create a situation that calls for an existential and political choice. One is either for the airport or against it. In the words of Karl Marx to Vera Zasulich, writing in the context of an earlier rural battle against the state, quote, it is a question no longer of a problem to be solved, but simply of an enemy to be beaten. It is no longer a theoretical problem. It is quite simply an enemy to be beaten. A 57-kilometer tunnel will either be drilled through the Alps for a high-speed train line, or it will not. An airport will either be built on farmland, or it is not. What does it mean to create a territory, and what does it mean to defend one? Why is defending more generative of solidarity and thus more pragmatic and far-reaching than the political verb we hear mentioned so much more frequently, namely resisting. It may seem odd that someone like myself, trained in literature and aesthetics and art, should pose such a question, but it should not be surprising. The perception available to a geographer, on the one hand, and to an artist or someone preoccupied by art on the other, bears a significant overlap. For both, the physical environment can never be reduced to mere background or abstract space. The world for both can never be a warehouse of inert things piled up for later use. One reason I have had such frequent recourse to geographical perspectives and ways of framing questions is that geography for me becomes a means of approaching landscapes with a sensitivity to what state boundaries obscure, unexpected natural formations, and modes of life that spring up below the radar of authority. The Zod, as I came to learn, was nothing if not another such laboratory for the creation of a parallel world. And the dotted line there is the, is, is the what the government set up to be the space of the future airport. A parallel world, a truly revolutionary exper experiment, and one of those that reconfigures the fight lines of an era. What I saw there could easily come under the heading of a commune in the making, if by commune we understand a group of people dwelling in a given space who take their existence in hand and manage their affairs together 
in rupture with the existing social and economic order. Communal practices, whether in Paris in 1871 or Chiapas today, imply staying in place and standing in the way, and by doing so, creating alternatives in the here and now, distinct, more or less self-reliant and semi-autonomous zones or territories. They embody the power of collectivity with the ideal of self-determination and reliance. Taking a position, as Harvey's remarks make clear, is not just central to the issue, it is the issue. I accepted the invitation to go down to the Zad, and for me the visit was an extraordinary moment. We had our discussion about communal practices. It was very animated. Uh, you know, the French media at that point was, was busy portraying the inhabitants of the Zad as though they were, uh, you know, the characters out of the Mad Max trilogy. But in fact, what I saw there was a very uh, different and uh, varied group of people, old people, babies. Um, they were very well read. They had varied and profound experiences and skills, and they knew what interested them. We were not concerned with writing any linear or progressive history joining the commune to contemporary movements like the Zad. We tried rather to talk about the commune as the Paris commune as an integral part of its own historical moment, but also in a way that exceeded its own history and that could suggest to us possible futures. Even the projects that the communards could not complete like federation or an enduring regional self-sufficiency, for example, projects that were forced to remain at the level of a dream or an intention, could then be seen to have profound significance for contemporary struggles like Notre Dame des Longs. And what was surprising to me was not so much our discussion, but rather the way that it unfolded. Uh, I thought we would just get right to it, but we had to wait first for people to come back from who were demonstrating in Paris against the labor laws, and then they came back, but more pressingly, there was a herd of cows that had to be moved from one field to another on the other side of the Zad, and these cows were very easy, but the, there were some horses there also that they had to be moved and they were unbroken and they escaped in the woods and had to be caught. All of this um, taking quite a bit of time. So it wasn't until the end of the day that we sat outside in the sun in a lovely space near where the bed, uh, bread was being baked. This is their flour machine. And the bread came out of the ovens just then. We had our discussion with warm bread to share. Now, while this anecdote gives some idea of the interplay between intellectual and manual labor at the Zad, it would nonetheless be nothing more than a nice folkloric scenario if the Zad were not also a place of struggle. In fact, it's the, it was the constant revertibility of the Zad between a place for living and a place for struggle, between dwelling and combat, which made it such a thorn in the side of the state in recent years. Now, it is clear that what matters for the world of international airports, 
is a smooth and seamless transit between substitutable spaces. What matters for a territory? The making of a territory has everything to do with a logic of difference and possibility, autonomy, and self-determination. Old, rather unfashionable notions like aura and authenticity associated with singularity and identity come back into play, but with a difference. For if the Zad has an aura, it has been constructed over time by the actions of many. It's authenticity created through the possibilities of common life that place-based social relations perpetuate, even amidst a striking diversity of beliefs and identities. The making of a territory is the making of a place that precisely cannot be exchanged for any other. Where the Zad's fight began first with the airport, it was no longer with high-speed transport per se, but with the world of high-speed transport, a world of class division that identifies human progress with economic growth and defines human needs in terms of markets and the submission of all markets, all the world's resources to markets. Preventing one's territory from becoming a mere node in a global capitalist system a space of pure transit where people do nothing more than just pass through, is a way of stabilizing in time and perhaps even with luck a lifetime, a way of life that lies at least partially outside of and against the state and the market. Resistance, to return to the question I asked at the beginning of this talk, means that the battle, if there ever was one, has already been lost. We can only try helplessly to resist the overwhelming power that we attribute to the other side. Defending, on the other hand, means that there is already something on our side that we possess, that we value, that we cherish, and that is thereby worth fighting for. Resistance unites a community by erecting a power to oppose, Donald Trump, to use a familiar example, rather than forcing a community to interact with each other in meaningful enough ways to determine and decide what it is. Defending is much more difficult and more fruitful to pursue to the extent that it obliges a community to think through what it is and isn't, not in identitarian or ideological ways, but rather according to what it values and considers worth defending. Uh, I don't know how much um, you are familiar with the history of the Zad, so I thought I would just give you a brief history. It, uh, back in the early 1970s, uh, at the height of the post-war modernization frenzy, um, known in France as the Trente Glorieuse, that was the moment that the project to build an airport outside of Nantes was first dreamed up. It was a ridiculous project from the outset because Nantes, which is only 15 kilometers away, already has an international airport. So this was a completely redundant uh, um, construction. So people living in the zone designated for its construction were supposed to agree to see themselves as obsolete and simply disappear, but something else happened. 
Farmers refused to leave their land and were quickly joined by nearby inhabitants who threw themselves energetically uh, into citizen actions like studies, lobbying, legal maneuvering to counteract the expertise of the pro-airport advocates. The first squatters arrived in 2008, and from that point on, the Zod, and that, that's bureaucracy speak, that's zone d'aménagement différé, Z-A-D, in the language of the government, became a Zad zone à défendre. So they, they kept the, the letters, but uh, changed it the acronym into a combative acronym. It is important to recall that the arrival of the squatters, many of whom morphed into permanent occupiers, was desired. The cohabitation was successful. It wasn't at all seamless or conflict-free, but it was a graft of three very distinct groups, occupiers, farmers, townspeople. The beginning of what has been the Zad's greatest challenge and ongoing achievement of solidarity in extreme diversity. And I want to talk about that uh, especially. But I mentioned earlier that the, the primary difference separating the land-based struggles like Chiapas or Standing Rock in the Americas um, are indigenously led. In Europe, instead, there's an improbable assortment of different components. At the Zod, it was old historic farmers, young more radical farmers, petty bourgeois shopkeepers, elected officials, black bloc anarchists, naturalists, who, naturalists who don't even believe in farming. Um, and no one group was in any kind of a leadership role. Uh, so unlike, say, um, you know, the uh, something like Standing Rock, where you have a clear leadership of the indigenous people. This has created a very different kind of movement than those ideologically based struggles familiar in the history of the left. One that is in its desire to hold together the diverse but equal components that make it up requires, as one Zod dweller put it, more tact than tactics. And they called, uh, they themselves have called this process whereby of, of bringing together this improbable group of very different kinds of people. They call it composition. And composition was really born with the Zod. The kind of social base it creates is distinct, essentially a working alliance um, involving many disidentifications a working alliance that is also the sharing of a physical territory, a living space. Composition is the mark of a massive investment in organizing life in common without the exclusions in the name of ideas, identities, or ideologies that we so frequently encounter in radical milieu. If the Zod is perhaps the best example of an open conflict that has managed to endure, and to build for itself dur duration in the midst of struggle, then it has everything to do with this process. Composition is nothing more than the fruits of an unexpected meeting between separate worlds, 
and the promise contained in the becoming commune of that meeting. It is thus a space or a process where even antagonisms create an attachment. Composition is the way that autonomous forces unite and associate with each other, sometimes complementing each other, sometimes contradicting each other, but always, in the end, dependent on each other. When it works, these different elements strive to recognize each other and work together in pursuit of common desires that surpass each of them rather than trying to resolve their differences. And so what I'm, what I'm talking about is really um, a situation where you don't try to convince the other people in the group that your way is superior. And so this amounts to a lot of very different ways of going about the struggle. So on the one hand, it might be sabotage. It might be a purely legal procedure where you block the um, courtrooms. You might be cataloging endangered species. You might be having frontal, vicious battles with the police. But everyone is just essentially doing their own thing and not, and, and not trying to uh, convince others of the superiority. So this is especially important in a movement whose enemies try ceaselessly to divide and conquer by setting one group up against another. The strength of the movement derives precisely from its diverse makeup, which in the case of the Zad has allowed it to express itself through all different kinds of actions like blocking highways with tractors to legal um, maneuvering to very violent demonstrations. So composition is the creation and maintaining of solidarity in diversity. Um, solidarity among people of disparate ideologies, identities, and beliefs, whose coming together and staying together adds up to no final orthodoxy. So you have just a kind of continuing internal eclecticism. This eclecticism and the dis disagreements it constantly produces can be exhausting and often aggravating, so why make the effort? because the power of the movement resides in a certain excess. The excess of creating something that is more than the sum of ourselves, something that only the composition between our differences makes possible. United in their opposition to the airport, each group nevertheless proceeded for many years along its own path. Um, they were what the Zapatistas call a world where many worlds fit. And it was not until the fall of 2012 that the state launched a full-scale military invasion of the Zad in a brutally violent but ultimately failed attempt to evacuate the zone. It was at that point that the plurality of conjugated actions and components began to think of themselves as one movement. The experience of the physical confrontation with the police during the one-month siege, the solidarity it engendered between groups that came to rely on each other in combat, the rebuilding and reoccupation phase afterwards when 40,000 supporters from all over France and Europe, incensed by the display of state violence, 
showed up to help re rebuild the dwelling places on the Zod. It is thus the ability of the Zod, like uh, the two long land-based movements I mentioned earlier, the Larzac in France and the anti-Narita uh, airport movement in Japan, it is thus their ability to have stabilized in time and to continue to make new creative ways of inhabiting conflict that has been its perhaps most interesting characteristic. Its sheer duration, you could say that the Zod lasted for 50 years. I mean, the, the project for the airport started in 68, along with Antipode, apparently. <laughs> um, but uh, but it's really, it was really only the last 10 years that you had this mix of people uh, with the occupiers and everything. But 10 years is a long time. It's a lot longer than Taksim, or Madrid, or Occupy Oakland, or any of the um, uh, uh, shorter-lived occupations that, uh, not coincidentally, were all urban occupations. As Pierre Kropotkin pointed out in his rewriting of the Paris Commune in his book, The Conquest of Bread, proximity to and involvement with the means of subsistence is essential not only to the duration of a movement, but to establishing lived intimacy with the territory. At the heart of that relationship is a form of embeddedness that undoes any distinction between dwelling in a territory and defending it. The state invasion did much more than cement the various components of the struggle into a newly efficient coalition. It accelerated and deepened the community's knowledge of and visceral attachment to the territory in ways that could not be anticipated, making the very act of dwelling, of subsisting, of staying put, a more forceful political act. Any place owes its character and experiences, uh, owes its character to the experiences it affords to those who spend time or dwell there. And those experiences for the occupiers now included weeks of physical combat atop trees, in clouds of tear gas, their houses raised by tanks, bulldozers, with even the debris hauled away to destroy any memory of their existence, along with anything that could be used as a projectile against the police. What was now being defended included all the new social links and entanglements, the new physical relation to the territory, what Gaston Bachelard calls its muscular consciousness. All that the battle and the rebuilding had created, the great enthusiasm and joy that came with victory. Defending the territory now entailed defending the collective life project that had emerged there. A project that includes the very concept of territoriality itself to the extent that it fuses the spatial and the social while nurturing a certain autonomy and will to self-determination. The territory offers the possibility of acting on the real in a manner that is at once convivial, transgressive, and pragmatic. It creates mobilization out of demobilizing. What is revolutionary about the Zad and its inhabitants is not so much their opposition to the airport, 
as their discovery over time of what it was that they were for, what they had to defend. And this comes largely from the experience of anchoring themselves in a symbiotic, symbiotic entanglement of people and place, best summed up by a slogan frequently encountered on the Zad, nous ne défendons pas la nature, nous sommes la nature qui se défend. We are not, we do not defend nature, we are nature defending itself. Uh, and I, I sort of read this as a rewriting of, and rephrasing of, of uh, communard geographer Elise Recluse, uh, a famous statement, um, man is nature becoming conscious of itself. So I just want to make a little parenthetical remark now about Reclus because he's a, he's, he is the geographer that I've gone back to um, throughout everything I've written actually. And, and um, in part because of it, he, he makes, he manifests a kind of proto-ecological sensibility that's common, well, with his friend Kropotkin um, and I think that this kind of, of sensibility on the part of 19th century geographers is not surprising um, because geographers like historians, I don't need to tell you this, but I mean, you're concerned with the inscription of time in space, but the geographer's emphasis is, is obviously much more on space. And I think that that makes a big difference because Time and temporality, what historians work with, is, is a human construction. It's entirely human. And so it's tainted by all of the contemporary biases and prejudices that, that we have or that, that, that are part of an era. Whereas um, I think space is, is much more complex because it, it, it introduces the non-human into the equation. Uh, non-human differences and agendas like ge geological formations or other species or climate or any of these things that, uh, in other words, it, it, it forces an encounter with the non-human uh, that is uh, a little bit different from what historians deal with. So, um, One of the major effects of capital is to make us disconnected from the living, transforming us into people without places, endlessly uprooted and uprootable, according to the vicissitudes of the economy. And the idea that there is only one world is in fact the essence of capital. The world as it exists is the lone referential basis for what is possible. The question then becomes, how do we cultivate a point of view that is not that of the economy? How to get out of the impasse of political economy and its critique? For even the critique of political economy keeps us locked in the unique world of capital and thus participates in the eradication of the plurality of worlds. When we say that the Zad makes dwelling or inhabiting into a more forceful political act, 
We are saying that to think our lives from the perspective of where we live, inhabiting a place and being inhabited by it, is one way to cultivate a point of view that does not begin and end with economic productivity. As a group from, from the Zad recently put it, if it has become so crucial for the political classes to crush the Zad, it is because the Zad constitutes an insolent demonstration of a life that is possible without them, a better life. A better life certainly for those fleeing the very real aggravations of life in capitalist culture. But the kind of freedom experienced in the Zad is more than just the negative freedom of retreat from an unjust world into a culture of consolation. It is just as much a launching point, which is to say that it figures a more positive, actively experimental sort of freedom. Time at the Zad moves according to task-oriented work rather than salaried labor in a world where the positive impacts of high-speed travel have long ago been dismissed as a myth. The practical business of living, building structures, caring for the animals, cultivating the fields, organizing the library, does not make for the narrow focus one might expect. During one of my visits, occupants were busy building a lighthouse in the middle of the Zad. The ocean is nowhere near. <laughs> I pointed that out to him and I said, why are you building a lighthouse? I mean, is it defensive? Is it in order to see the cops when they come? No, someone answered. It's communal luxury. It's the seventh wonder of the Zad. The phrase communal luxury figures in the closing sentence of the manifesto written in 1871 by the Artist Federation during the com Paris Commune. I used it as the title of my book about the Commune. By uniting fine artists and artisans into a single artistic intelligence, an art federation, commune arts effectively overturned the hierarchy at the core of the artistic world. Um, and this was, this was a, this was the longest lasting hierarchy of art organization in France that only fine artists, only sculptors and uh, high painters, you know, could sign their work. Only that counted as art. And what artisans did, what lace makers did, what people who painted ceramic pottery did, that was not art. So, what, um, what, what the artists and artisans who, who bonded together during the commune meant by communal luxury was something like the creation of public beauty, the enhancement of the lived environment in villages and towns, or the right of every person to live and work in a pleasing environment. Now, this might sound like a very small demand, but if you think about it, what they had in mind entailed not only a complete reconfiguration of our relationship to art, but to labor, social relations, nature, lived environment as well. It meant art and beauty deprivatized, fully integrated into everyday life. The world is divided between those who have and those who don't have the luxury of playing with words and images. Communal luxury overcomes that division. 
a society's aesthetic resources would never again take the shape of what William Morris, Britain's most enthusiastic and creative supporter of the memory of the commune called that base piece of Napoleonic upholstery, the Vendome column. This was, in other words, a full dismantling under the commune of socially determined and ancient categories of artistic practices. Shoemaker Napoleon Gaillard, that's, that's him. He was, he was um, chief of barricade construction during the, uh, during the commune. He was famous for a, treaty, uh, a treatise that he had written on the art of the foot <laughs> um, and the art of the shoe. But, um, but he took over as, and became the pr prominent barricade uh, uh, designer and constructor during, during the commune. And he was, he, was, he was castigated by anti-communards for his vanity. You know, they called him a vain shoemaker, the father of barricades. And they, they, call, uh, they called that particular barricade the Chateau Gaillard. And he was accused um, by anti-communards of considering his barricades to be works of both art and luxury. And they were right. I mean, he did consider them that way. And he insisted on being photographed in front of them, uh, in effect signing uh, you know, his oeuvre. His, his so... <clears throat> Communal luxury as practiced during the commune or on the Zod is thus a way of constituting an everyday aesthetics of process, the act of self-emancipation made visible. This is the uh, woodworking atelier at the Zod. So what seems initially like a decorative demand on, a few, on the part of a few decorative artists is in fact the call for nothing short of a total reinvention of what a society values and what it's willing to defend. It's a call for the reinvention of wealth beyond exchange value or the end of luxury founded on class difference. Now, it's interesting to note that when I... I um, when the French version of my book, Communal Luxury, came out, I had a big fight with the editor over there about the title, and I just wanted to call it Luxe Communal, which is a direct citation from the communards. I didn't see it as problematic. But my editor said um, that the adjective communal in French only conjured up images of municipal swimming pools or very boring local elections now in France. And so it, had, it didn't have any of the resonance that I thought it did. And so we, uh, we argued and argued, and then I finally gave in because it's his language, so I thought he must know. But here was proof that he was wrong. Here was material and conceptual evidence that the aspirations and achievements to which artists and artisans of the Paris Commune in the last century gave the name communal luxury were not only firmly grasped by French and others today, but were being thoughtfully and creatively furthered along, lived and cultivated in a small bocage on the outskirts of Nantes. Now I just want to have a quick afterword and then I'll stop. Um, as, as many of you probably know, the Zod was ultimately victorious. And in January of last year, 
the Macron government announced that no airport would be built. They had won. The state collapsed. But it didn't collapse for long because a few months later, the same government proved its obsession with annihilating any life that is being lived differently. And it ordered, at the cost of 400,000 euros a day, another military-style invasion of 3,000 police and soldiers in tanks launched into the zone to destroy the numerous dwelling places and communal buildings of occupiers intent on continuing the collective farming that they had practiced during the opposition. They wanted to stay. So the scale of the military offensive against the Zod is one measure. This is, this is an interesting um, thing where they, they gathered up, the, Zod, the people of the Zod gathered up all of the spent grenades that were used and dumped them in front of the mayor's office of Nantes. And they were arrested for littering. <laughs> um, but look at the quantity. This, this, this was for 200 people. That, that was the amount. And tanks, mil, you know. The scale of the military offensive against the Zod is one measure of the threat the government perceived in the occupier's collective exit from salary labor and consumer gratification. The threat, too, in the appeal the world they were building held to the thousands of people who came there in support, with some of these deciding to stay put and make a life there. Government intransigence, combined with the military occupation of the zone, created an insurmountable division among occupiers between those who were willing to negotiate with the government to try to find a way to stay and continue in some form the collective experiments of the Zad, and those who brooked no dialogue whatsoever with the state. And these were forcibly expelled by the government from the zone. For the occupiers who remain, a different phase of the struggle has unfolded as they try to secure the different habitations and practices they developed over the years and cultivate new initiatives in the battle against development for development's sake. Thank you. So you opened with the anecdote about going to the Zard to talk about the commune. Uh, could you say a little bit more about the histories that those at the Zard are interested in? Are there particular choices being made about the histories that are being mobilized? Yeah. Because we know in the context of Occupy and other places that the protesters really know their history and they're deeply strategic in mobilizing the particular histories that might offer best ends. Yeah. So can you say a little bit more about why the commune and potentially other histories? Well, the, um, uh, there's, there, they are very involved with a lot of contemporary movements. So for example, there's a lot of movement back and forth with the Zapatistas and the people at the Zod. They go over there, uh, the Zapatistas come over. Um, so there's that kind of contemporary exchange. One of the, one of the um, histories that they're very involved with is the history of their own region which is in France the place of a, of a deep history of, of radical agriculture. And that, that does not exist anywhere else in France, really. So you have, um, for example, uh, 
I've been giving a lot of talks about 68 because that's the other 50th anniversary. At this point now, I have absolutely no interest in what happened in Paris in 68 because what happened in Nantes was so much more interesting. There you had a coalition of students and workers and farmers, and the farmers were essential because they sort of fed the movement. They, 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 there were existing networks in place when the workers went on strike for the farmers to come in and with the students to coordinate an entire means of bringing you know, food and milk into um, poor areas of the city. And, and so that particular coalition is something that, and history that the Zod is very interested in and that they are now reproducing themselves because um, I'm sure you've heard about the, the current situation in France now with the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest movement. And, you know, that's a, that's a big question mark. But, and initially, you know, the Zad was, was I mean, no, many of the Gilets Jaunes would have been against the Zad, so there was a little bit of antagonism, but the, the Zad decided to, to enact real solidarity with them, and they are now bringing food to the traffic circles, you know, where the Gilets Jaunes uh, are demonstrating. So, and, and they're doing this in a conscious kind of reference to the history of Nantes in 68. One of the things I really appreciate about your talk is how, how concrete, how rooted, how, how, how in, in the materiality and the, the reality of people's lives uh, your work is. And I, I just commend that. It inspires me. So, I mean, my question is, can you talk to us a little bit more about daily life? Uh, uh, water supply, sanitation, uh, what did they do when somebody got sick uh, <clears throat> of the 200? How many were children? Were they, were they homeschooled? Were, they, were there hassles? over there not going to public school. I mean, there's so many ways this style of life and this, this, this occupation, this defense, defensive action, could have been attacked from the point of view of uh, school law, sanitation, public mm -hmm. health. So, so there's also that dynamic. But I'm, I'm just curious about the, the, the round of daily life. They, they stole their electricity. They had no sewage. They had no toilets. There were some kids, ba more and more babies were born. Uh, some of them were homeschooled and some of them were sent to public schools based on the parents' decision. There, was a, there wasn't a real conflict about that, just people did what they wanted. The way people lived for the most, I mean, when I, when I went there, I would stay in, the, in a caravan belonging to a guy who was in prison. And what they had were frequently would, would be uh, people, people went off to sleep wherever they wanted to, you know. Uh, but then each group had a communal area for, for cooking and eating and living. The, it was small, small, small compounds of different sizes. Like, so you might have four women living in one or, uh, you know, seven adults and two kids or, you know, it's different, very different according to affinities. People just, and sometimes there would be shifts in that over time. People would move. Also, according to activity, you know, many people were much more involved, say, with working on um, 
maintaining and, and, and managing the forest and what was going to happen with the, with the wood, which they didn't have that much of, and which, you know, and here's another example of, of the kinds of federation, because really uh, the French rural areas are filled with experimental um, situations like this. It's, uh, the French countryside is so much more interesting than the cities right now because of uh, these forgotten areas that the, you know, the state went for a nap that lasted 20 years with some of these places. And, and, and because of that, you can get a lot done you know, when the state is sleeping in terms of just living very, very differently. And that's happening in all of these sort of forgotten places in the countryside like the Ardennes or the Cévennes or, you know, these mountains and forest areas where people are really um, coming up with brilliant ways of, of uh, working together and just creating new forms of community. There's a group in Cévennes where, and these are not people that have a lot of money, but what they did was the next time that a, a house went on the market to, in order to prevent it becoming a second home for, for some Parisian or, or British person, you know, looking for a second home, they pulled together and bought it themselves and are renting it to someone who is really living there, you know, and who's living there all the time. Uh, because desertification or whatever you call it, you know, the, just the, the depopulation of the countryside is such a problem. So, yeah, daily life. Well, a lot of it is agriculturally oriented. Thanks to Kristen Ross for the talk. Thank you for, for coming. This presentation was the 2019 Antipode American Association of Geographers Lecture, delivered by Professor Kristen Ross on April 4th at the AAG Annual Meeting in Washington, D.C. Antipode, a radical journal of geography, is a leading critical human geography journal established in 1969. It is owned by the Antipode Foundation, a UK-based nonprofit which, among other things, stages lectures at international academic conferences. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.